people who've been here 20 plus years and uh, a couple things, we're getting old, right Jason? Uh, <laughs> older and grayer and balder and uh, all those wonderful things, um, but it's just great to see God's faithfulness. Um, Peter, it's just wonderful to see you and it's wonderful to be able to worship um, together. So um, yeah, I wanna get in on this. Um, I'm gonna read from Matthew chapter 11. Um, verse 11, and I'm going to be speaking uh, a little bit on the, the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, but ultimately we'll get to Jesus, of course, and it's uh, kind of fitting that, you know, the Lord would have the Baptist speak on John the Baptist, right? So um, all kidding aside, let's read together from Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Do you know it's good to see you? I don't want to just name names, but uh, I won't. <laughs> the Word of God reads, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So as we seek to be fed, as we seek to grow, uh, let's draw near to the Lord in prayerful dependence. Let's pray. God, we need your spirit who is with us and who dwells amongst us to open up our eyes and our ears to hear you clearly, to hear how we need to be convicted, how we need to repent, how we need to be encouraged. So Lord, that's what we ask for. We cry out for you to help us, to speak to us, to minister to us. And Lord, as we sit under the authority and the wisdom of your word, help us to remember, help us to contemplate on the reality that you are far more concerned with growing us and um, our holiness and our witness as your people than, than you are with our, any fleeting happiness that we may desire right now. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here gathered today be pleasing and acceptable, O Lord, our great Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So. These are the three points that um, we're going to get through, that I hope to, to get you through, that I pray will deepen our love for God and our love for one another and our love for the world out there, those who need to hear the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Point one, John the Baptist was called the goat by the goat. <laughs> Point two, John the Baptist was clear about his identity um, but he was also clear about Jesus' identity. And point three, John the Baptist was convicted of and communicated his doubts. So let's start with point one. John the Baptist was called the goat by the goat. Who is the goat? <laughs> That's the Christian answer, right? I asked my son this morning, um, because we'll get into it for a moment, but who, who's the greatest YouTuber of all time? And he's, he, was, he just racked his mind very quickly, and he didn't give the Jesus answer, but you know what answer he gave me? The Bible Project? <laughs> and I was like, good answer, son, but I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to Jesus juke you into giving me the holy, sanctified answer. I want to know who you think is the greatest YouTuber, and he's like, I think it'd have to be Mr. Beast. Do you guys know who Mr. Beast is? Jimmy Donaldson? Okay, that's inconsequential, but he's a guy who makes a lot of money through ads, and he gives away a lot of money, and he does all these kind of, you know, neat things on the internet. Mr. Beast, he owns a, 
a hamburger shop up at, up at a mall in, in um, Bergen County as well, Mr. Beast Burgers. But who is the greatest of all time? I guess it depends on the category and the realm that, I'm, you know, that, that I might be asking, that we might be discussing. Because when it comes to basketball, when it comes to the NBA, um, we don't have to discuss it any more than Jordan was the greatest of all time, <laughs> right? LBJ was just a, a former president of the United States, right? <laughs> so we know that Jordan is the great, he's the GOAT. Um, who's the greatest actress or actor? Uh, we may have our opinions, we may have our perspectives. Um, back in the day, and I'm showing my age here, but uh, there was a boxer by the name of Muhammad Ali, and he was a flashy, uh, arrogant, brash, um, but extremely talented boxer, and he used to go around saying, I am the greatest. And he arguably was the greatest boxer of all time. But in the passage that I read just a moment ago, Jesus gives his take on who was the greatest of all time, born of women. And he said it was John the Baptist. I'll read it again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I don't know about y'all, but when, if, if, if Jesus says something about someone's life being great, I think it might be worth taking a look at that person's life and asking ourselves, what was so great about him or her, but in this case it's a him, what's so great about him and his life that Jesus would highlight him as such in the Holy Scriptures. And I think it's important not just for the sake of, you know, scratching the itch that some of us might have theologically or scripturally, right? We want to exposit, exegete the passage, and we want to know exactly what Jesus is getting at. That is important. But I would say that it's also very important and relevant for us because in very deep and pointed ways, this applies to who we are in our humanity, who we are as Christ followers, but just in our humanity alone. Because I believe that we all, in some way, shape, or form, to some degree, it may waver at times in our lives, or depending on circumstances, we desire greatness. We desire significance, we do. And I say this based upon the fact that it's, it's in our blood, it's, it's in our wiring, our, our DNA, um, it's how God has created and fashioned us in Mago Dei. We desire this, this, this greatness, this significance. We are creatures who desire glory, as a matter of fact. Think about it. Sister Dahlia, am I pronouncing your name right? That was an intense, beautiful, wonderful, inspiring time of worship that you let us in just a moment ago. Thank you so much. I mean, she like manipulated us in the good ways and used us as instruments, right? The piano was beautiful, but we didn't even need the piano because we had our voices, we had our feet, we had our hands. I mean, that, that was great. You guys, we need, you need to be giving thanks for a worship little like that. But let me ask you, Dolly, did you strive for mediocrity <laughs> as, you, as you practiced and as you rehearsed with the team, if you did? And um, did, you, did you just say, you know, I'm just going to kind of like you know, just go with the flow and whatever happens, happens. No. I mean, I, I would dare guess that for the glory of God, 
for the good of her brothers and sisters sitting here, those who've gathered, she, stro- she strove, if that's the word, strived. She pursued greatness in her worship leading. That's a good thing. That's a God thing. And I think for most of us, for all of us in, in our studies, in our career, in our leisurely pursuits even, our, our, in our you know, artistic pursuits, in our even relationships, we strive for and we pursue greatness. When it comes to those of us who have uh, a wife or a husband or those who are of age and we're aspiring to, to get that significant other that we can one day call our husband or our wife, do you strive for a mediocre spouse? <laughs> Think about it. No, you, you strive for someone who's going to compliment you well, someone who's going to love you well. I can go on and on and on and on, but this is something we strive for, greatness. And it's not a bad thing at all, but, but sadly, in our fallenness, we all too often desire and strive for greatness um, in a standard, with a standard that is, is kind of stuck in the eyes of, of the world, right? We, 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 we desire greatness before the eyes and the opinions and the standards of the world rather than before the eyes and the standards of Jesus. So let's take a quick look at John's life. You can't do much in one sitting under one sermon, but we can do something, right? Who was John the Baptist? Or some people call him the baptizer because he wasn't necessarily a Baptist, right? <laughs> Who was he? Who was he? Some believe that he was the cousin or the second cousin of Jesus. And the reason why I kind of pinpoint that is because in the, new, in the King James Version text, um, Mary and Elizabeth were actually called cousins. But what I learned from the commentaries was that it, cousin was a, was a word that designated kind of like a broad relationship, familial kind of, you know, like um, category. So who knows? But we, we do know that they were related And he was the forerunner of the Messiah. His mom and dad, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were way beyond their childbearing years. And as a matter of fact, his mother, uh, her womb was was barren. She she had a dead womb. She just was unable to, to become pregnant. So you have this old couple with a wife that was never able to, you know, become uh, pregnant, um, conceive, and yet in their old stage of life, they give birth to a miracle baby, John the Baptist. And he was a very crucial piece. He was the forerunner to to the Messiah. And he's so important that the gospel writer, Luke at least, he tells of his birth account before even telling about Jesus's birth account. That may mean nothing. I think it might mean something because this is a you know, uh, an Eastern or, or near Middle Eastern kind of culture and order means a big th- is a big thing, right? Deference and whatnot. John was spoken of by the prophets of old. You can read about him in, in, in Isaiah, in Malachi. Isaiah 43 writes, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And that became John's ministry later on in his adult life. He became the one who called for, who prepared the way 
for the coming Messiah. For those of you who are, you know, really just enamored by the Christmas season and you get into your Handel's Messiah, right? I think it's the third movement, right? Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain made low, and the crooked made straight, and the rough places plain. That's Isaiah 40, verse 4. That was his role. In the ancient world of these times, right, there was someone who played this role. It was customary for someone to proclaim the coming of a king or a queen or a foreign dignitary. And they would do this not only proclaiming that, hey, the king is coming, right, and I'm, I'm coming before the king to announce this, but they literally would make straight the paths by clearing the path, the terrain. They would uh, adorn the streets, and they would, in a sense, roll out the red carpet for, for this coming king or queen. It happens today, right, in contemporary society. A few weeks back, uh, for those of you who work in the city, you remember there were all these, you know, dignitaries coming into the UN, and they made a way, they cleared the path, and it resulted in traffic jams and, and headaches for us, for those who work in the city, but that's, that's essentially what John the Baptist had to do. He preached and he taught a message of repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand, and we know that it wasn't merely physical terrain. It actually wasn't physical terrain that he was clearing out. It was spiritual. And that's why he preached such a hard, hard word. Why? Because he was preparing the way for the greatest dignitary of all time, the greatest king, the one and only true king, Jesus. That was his calling. Is this what made him great? Sure, why not? But I think there's more. If you have some knowledge of the scriptures, um, he's kind of a fun, quirky, I hope it's okay <laughs> to call John the Baptist quirky, but you may know something about his physical appearance, about his attire and his style, for lack of a better word. Um, uh, according to our 21st century sensibilities, um, you might either call him or, you know, kind of think of him as an eccentrically weird guy, a weird dude, or he was way ahead of his times, right? And what I mean by this, he wore camel hair, a leather belt. I'm not even sure if he wore sandals or shoes, okay? The, uh, that's kind of like, you, you, you picture that, and that's what you see in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, right? Very hip, <laughs> very kind of retro, whatever you want to call it, very simple, right? So he, he was a hipster in a sense. Or he, he ate wild honey and locusts. This is the new protein for the future. Did you guys know that? <laughs> I, I kid you not. According to the BBC, they're packed with nutrients and they are less harmful to the climate, right? So uh, uh, Barclays announced that edible insects market will grow to $6.3 billion by 2030. So this is something for you, you know, finance guys to, to invest in. Um, that's who he was. He didn't touch any fermented drink. He didn't cut his hair because he took a Nazarite vow. The, the root word, Nazir, right, in the original basically means to be separate, to be consecrated for God's purposes. You can read all about it if you want to in Numbers chapter 6. We're not going to get into it more than that. So he, he, he was this radical, he was an ascetic, 
self-denial. He, he was nomadic. And, and this existence, he, he lived out in the wilderness of Judea, again, for Jesus' name's sake. Is this why he was called greatest among those born of women? Again, I'm sure it played a part, but I think there's more. And that leads us to our, to our second point. John the Baptist was clear, crystal clear, about his identity and Jesus' identity. So he was called, he's commissioned to live out this radical life, preaching repentance and baptism to the masses, and that surely included the Pharisees and the Sadducees, basically the, the Sanhedrin, right? This was the high court of the Jewish people. He was bold. He, he called, he openly, publicly referred to this Jewish religious establishment as a brood of vipers. I mean, he was just, he, he didn't pull any punches. But what happens as he engages in his ministry with faithfulness? In the scriptures, you read about tax collectors and prostitutes and um, soldiers and just run-of-the-mill sinners, right? The least, the last, and the lost start repenting and receiving. This wasn't the Christian baptism, but it was a baptism of, of purification, and it was controversial because he was calling Jewish people to receive this baptism of purification. That, that wasn't kosher, so to speak, all pun intended, right? It was a radical ministry, and, and soon enough, if you read about his following and you follow his ministry, he became a ministry rock star. He really did a radical ministry rock star. Think of someone who you consider to be a little more on the, like the, the radical side of, of ministry. Um, when I think of worship people or worship kind of musicians, I think of Keith Green. Anyone, raise your hand if you know <laughs> Keith Green. Okay, a small hand, you know, it's a matter of hands. Uh, the dude had a fro, right? And he was a white guy, okay? So he had a fro and he, he, was, he was on his way to stardom in the, in the secular kind of you know, music world and then Christ found him, and then he started singing about Jesus, singing about like what it means to be a radical follower of Christ, right? Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Oh, do you want to let them drown? And it, like, it, it had a, a powerful effect in my life, but he was a radical. You might think of like someone like Paul Washer, who you know, just preaches these like, you know, fire and brimstone type messages that you know, throws people for a loop, but ultimately, I feel he's doing God's God's work, God's ministry. Some of you may, may think of John Piper, right? He's pretty radical, right? Desiring God, right? Think of John Piper wearing a camel hair outfit, calling out, you know, the politicians of our day and just, just saying, repent, you brood of vipers. That's who John the Baptist was. And I don't want to say in spite of his simple radical life, I, I just want to say he became a dynamic ministry force, and he gained such a large following, so much so that people started wondering, wait, maybe this guy is the promised one. Maybe he's the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's going to liberate us, our people. And here's where we start seeing his greatness shining through. I'm going I'm to read some passages in John 1. In John chapter 1, verses 19 and following, 
John the Evangelist, two different guys, writes about John the Baptist. And he says this. He says, this is the testimony of John. Thank you. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. I'm going to add a little, bit, little, little here. I know some of you think I am the Christ. I know you see my following, and you see the radical nature of my life, and you think that I'm the guy, but I'm not the guy. And they asked him, what then? And they moved down, you know, a level. Are you Elijah, one of their deeply revered prophets? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? People think that was referring to Jesus, according to commentaries. He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to the one who, to those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The word in verse 19, testimony, that was John's testimony. That was his testimony. In the, in the original, the word for testimony, and I'll give you the official mispronunciation here, uh, is marturia. Marturia. For those of you who have any, you know, if you're studying for the SATs or GREs or whatever, or you just you know, like languages, etymologically, you, you know what word um, is derived from that word, right? The word martyr. And it just simply means witness. It simply means, you know, uh, one who gives witness, one who gives a testimony. This was his testimony. He was a witness to the life and the work of his cousin, Jesus, who came after him. This is what he was so clear on in terms of his identity and his calling and what his job was, was and, and so distinct to Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' role. Are you the Messiah? Nope. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Who are you? I'm just a voice. I'm just an ad that, you know, <laughs> the ads that you see on your, on your, on your browser, right, that just point you to something else. I'm just, an, I'm just a simple signpost pointing to the goat. I believe true greatness before God, according to God's design, according to God's standards of greatness, true greatness requires, on our part, super-duper clarity on who we are and who we are not. And J.B., John the Baptist, was so clear on this. The Jews were waiting and longing for a Messiah. And while they're waiting, they're being conquered and overrun by enemy forces, enemy powers, enemy nations. Sometimes it was God bringing them to a place of, of discipline and rebuke. Sometimes it was just because God felt like this is going to grow the character of my people and draw them closer to me. Now, in this time, they're under the impression of Rome, and they, they want so badly to be liberated. They want so badly to be able to worship Yahweh. They want so badly openly, publicly. They want so badly to, to be God's people, and they wanted to experience peace and prosperity, and they felt like this man, John the Baptist, he could get us there. But as 
as I've already read, John doesn't become opportunistic. He doesn't take advantage of the rumors that are circulating that he might be the Messiah. The Messiah. He doesn't elevate his status even the least bit. He doesn't make himself out to be someone he wasn't. He doesn't go there. He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed. I am not God. He knew he was not the one to bring the people out of this oppressive rule. He knew he wasn't the long-awaited king. He knew that he couldn't change anyone's life, and he knew he didn't deserve the worship and devotion that should go to Jesus. This is crucial for me to hear, and I think it might be crucial for you to hear. Maybe it's a timely reminder for some of you sitting here. Maybe some of you have been reminded of this very clearly in recent history, so this is more of a a review. It's a review probably for, for all of us, but more of a review for some of you. Because you're thinking, Juan, duh, I know I am not God. I know I am not Jesus. I'm not God in the flesh. I don't profess to be him. I don't ever, you know, kind of make any hint that I am him. No struggles here on this, so let's move on. I know that too. And I know that I am not the Messiah. But I'll confess right here and today before this pulpit that I sure do often act like I am the Messiah. I often act like I'm the one who needs to save, that I'm the one who needs to be the Lord, whether it be of my life, my circumstances, or those surrounding me. What I mean by that is, you know, whether it be your life, whether it be a ministry that you lead here at Graceway or a ministry that you lead out there somewhere or your marriage or relationships or circumstances, do you find that you act like your own savior, like your own Lord, like God? So much so that honest observers would perhaps ask you the types of questions that they asked John the Baptist, like, Jason, are you Lord? Are you Savior? Because what I'm seeing is you're trying to be the Savior and and Lord of this situation or of that. See, we all have this complex, and the broad kind of category of this complex is called sin, but in the ways that, that it gets kind of fleshed out in our lives is, I'll call it the Savior complex and the Lord complex complex, Savior and Lord complex. We, 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 we wrestle against that, or sometimes we don't, perhaps, in our ministries, in our lives. You know, uh, Jason, thank you for reading um, a little bit about who I am. Um, I have experience as a church planter, as a pastor, as a ministry leader uh, for a good number of years. Um, I'm really grateful for the time that I was able to spend as a minister of the gospel, as a leader uh, at Praise Church, um, the precursor to, to Grace Way. Uh, learned a lot. Didn't realize I was learning a lot back then, but when I look back and when I see how I've been formed and reformed, I'm just very grateful. Um, but so many times um, in leading ministries, I've gotten to a place where I've, you know, kind of like a, I, I've put a, my own stranglehold over the ministry 
Um, and that's not good. But I think what's even more dangerous and more um, corrupt is the, the, the attitude and, and the motivations and the heart that I often had as I was engaging in these ministries. And, and basically, what I, what I often found myself thinking was, wow, Juan, if it weren't for you, where would this church be? If it weren't for you, all these things would collapse and cease to exist if it weren't for Juan Kwok. And the irony is, when things are going good, that's where I find myself. When things are going bad, I'm like, God, if it weren't for you, <laughs> man, we'd be in such a better place. Why do you have to, you see what I mean? So I'm, it's a complex. It's kind of schizophrenic, but that's who we are in and of ourselves. But God in his mercy would Get me to the place where he would say, Juan, guess what? You're not the Christ. You are not essential to this. I'll get more to that in just a moment, but how are you exhibiting and living out this complex, or, or struggling with this complex of, of, of thinking that you're the Savior when in actuality Jesus is the Savior? Thinking that you're the Lord over this ministry, this life, this situation, this relationship, when in fact Jesus, when he should be the Lord over it all. For maybe maybe you're, you're helping someone in your small group or a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Maybe a couple that you're, you know, friends with and that couple, that husband and wife is on the brink of divorce and, and you're thinking to yourself with... Um, with with good desires, actually, in this case, but you're thinking, man, if I don't hold them together, if, I, if I'm not there for them, their marriage is as good as over. You're putting undue, undue uh, expectations upon yourself and responsibilities upon yourself, thinking that only you can be the answer to what their marriage needs, your friendship, your counsel, your love. Guess what? You're not the Christ. You're not the Christ. You're not the Lord. Maybe some of you are leading ministries here in the church. You're spearheading them, and you're bringing them to new heights of ministry success and effectiveness, and you're at a place where you think, like kind of how I thought at some points in my ministry leadership, this ministry entirely depends on my know-how and my, my leadership, and if, if I mess up, if, I, if they see if they see too much of an authenticity of my life and they see some of the failings that, and the deficiencies in my character, then, oh my goodness, I can't, so I better put this facade on so that they think I'm a great leader. For the sake of the ministry, guess what? You are not the Christ. Some of you parents are struggling as parents. You, um, your, your kids are you know, just kind of sinful and, and wayward. And not only are they rebelling against this faith that you've raised them in, but they're rebelling, um, and this is most painful often, they're just rebelling against you. They don't like you. They don't like your, your methods of parenting. They don't like your discipline, your, your love, your authority. And this is just unacceptable, and it's jarring, and you feel betrayed. 
you wonder what you could have done differently or what you could have done, what you did wrong. And, and so you start like ruling over your kids with an iron fist. My kids could tell you, I've been there, I've done that. That's your response because you think you're the Christ. And so you resort to your methods and your ways. Guess what? You're not the Christ. You're not the Lord. We have these complexes. We have these issues. We have these idolatries that we need to be fighting against, remembering uh, that, that we are not called by God, even as his, his, his ministers, to save. We're not called by God to lord over because that's Jesus' role. His role is to be the Savior and to be the Lord over all of his creation. We're just witnesses to his work, his life, his role. That's who we are. That's who John was. And he knew this. And he lived it out. Now, I'm not saying we, we resort to some sort of fatalistic let go and let God. All right, Juan, you, the preacher just told me today that I need to leave that couple alone. I need to leave that ministry alone to walk away from it. I need to just let go and let God. That's not taught in the Bible as well. Back in the day, a very wise and faithful preacher by the name of Dave Choi, <laughs> he used to exhort Praise Church, English congregation, to faithfulness to works. And he would say this. He would say, we can't do everything, but we can do something. That, that, simple words. He would, you know, preach the gospel, undergirded with the gospel, surrounded with the gospel, and he would say, grace, faith, works. We can't do everything, and we're not called to do everything, but we can do something. We can do something. John the Baptist did something powerfully but understanding who he was and understanding who Jesus was really made his ministry all the more powerful and effective. He, he declares the separation between him and Jesus. He declares it. In John chapter 1, 24 through 28, further he says, um, um, in verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So he talks about how the fact that Jesus was younger, he was his younger cuz, right? He talks about how he came after him in that sense, chronologically, but he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, his dirty, disgusting sandals, right? When, when he comes before the presence of Jesus, you know, when, when you come before someone, you try, you try to size them up, right? And you try to, you look like, you, you want to belong in the presence of someone great. At least I tried. <laughs> Maybe that's not a good thing. But this is what he does in John 1, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John, again, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. He, you know, baptized Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. And John was like, no, I don't deserve to be doing that. And Jesus says, no, this is, this is the way it's going to be to satisfy the prophets of old, to fulfill all righteousness. 
and he submits himself to Jesus' request because he knew who he was and he knew who Jesus was. Later on in his ministry, right, John's disciples start leaving him. Now, when, you're, when your own followers start leaving you and start going to that other rock star ministry leader's church or team, right, that's when you might start putting up, you know, a fight. That's when you might, you know, lay down the law. This, enough is enough. Jesus, he's a sheep stealer. <laughs> you, know, you could take that out of the message or make sure that it's, no, I'm just kidding. Right, Jesus was not a sheep stealer. Because these sheep who started leaving John and following him, they were Jesus' sheep, right? We are, we are just under-shepherds of the great shepherd. So in John 1, 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus, and as he walked by, he did what he always did. Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, right? He doesn't accuse Jesus of sheep stealing. He doesn't cause a fuss. He just says, that's what's supposed to happen. And I accept it, and I embrace it. Listen to this incredible quote um, from uh, an author, uh, a blogger. He's also a pastor. His name is Tim Challies. It's very humbling, but it's just how it should be. The preacher is not someone who is to be looked at but someone who is to be looked through. The task of the preacher is not to stand before the church and be seen and recognized as a great man or even a great preacher. The task of the preacher is to draw the minds and hearts of his listeners to God. He's failed in his calling if he's looked at instead of looked through. I don't think this is limited to preachers. I think this is all of us, worship leaders, children's ministry volunteers, evangelists, prison ministry workers. Our calling, our task, is to be someone who is not looked at and made much of, but someone who's looked through, someone who points to someone greater, someone wiser, someone truer. We all should be pointing to Jesus because he's not just significant or great. He is preeminent. He is the goat. And that leads us to our last point. John the Baptist was called the goat by the goat. John the Baptist was clear about his identity and Jesus' identity. John the Baptist was convicted of and communicated his doubts. I'm going to read Matthew 11, 1 through 6 very quickly. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's happening here? Later on in his life, later on in his ministry, John finds himself in a very hard, hard situation. His entire adult life, he's preaching, living out radical 
faithful you know, call to repentance. He's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. He's doing exactly what he's called out, called to do. He's faithful. He's unjustly thrown into prison. What did he do? He went a step too far, and he crossed a guy named Herod, Herod Antipas. Herod was committing, to put it euphemistically, adultery, right? He was cheating with his brother's wife, Herodias, and John would have none of it. He called out the sin of the simpleton, you know, the beggar on the street, and the, the king, or the tetrarch in this case. He's faithful with little things. He's faithful with big things. He, he doesn't hold back again. And he has every reason to believe that God will be faithful to him or should be faithful to him, and yet he's in prison. I mean, he's literally in prison, but figuratively, I think he's languishing in the prison of doubts and disbelief because he's wondering, maybe I've been preaching about the wrong guy. Maybe this Jesus, my cousin, is just another man like me with a great ministry that has kind of overshadowed mine. And so he has some doubts. He's facing a dark night of the soul. And so he tells his disciples to go like, and ask, is, is my cousin really the Messiah or should we be looking for another? You know, um, for those of you who are experiencing some persecution, persecution, because soon after John gets his head chopped off, he's going to become a martyr one who's persecuted and even executed for his faith. And if you're there, I just want to bring you encouragement. I read this um, on a social media post. Uh, I'll read it quickly, but it's pretty powerful stuff, and it really just reminds us that, that Jesus and Jesus' followers will be uniquely persecuted. No one thought I was brainwashed when I had a Buddhist decor up all over my house. No one thought I was brainwashed when I was meditating. No one thought I was brainwashed when 90% of my wardrobe had zodiac wheels or hands, hands on every shirt. No one thought I was brainwashed when I waved a crystal around my body and saged my house and said it was healing me. No one thought I was brainwashed when my entire world revolved around manifesting and thinking positive thoughts only. No one thought I was brainwashed when I could not make it through a day without yoga. No one thought I was brainwashed when I, could, when I would attend workshops for new and full moon rituals. No one thought I was brainwashed when I read books like Law of Attraction or The Universe Has Your Back or any Deepak Chopra um, book. No one thought I was brainwashed when I was using a deck of cards to tell me what choices to make, but now that I've abandoned my old ways and I'm walking with Christ, I'm brainwashed. I've been told this is an identity crisis, I, that I need to find myself, that I'm one of those people, that I don't have any energy left, that I'm spreading spiritual misinformation, that I'm not the same, thank God, that I have no other interest than Jesus, than Jesus that I need to save the spiritual talk for spiritual people, that I'm lost. You know why people have so much to say about me as a Christian versus me as an occultist? It's because Jesus is alive. That was and a quick aside for those of you who are experiencing persecution. How does Jesus respond? Jesus looks at the word revealed. He looks at what he's doing, and he simply says, see and hear for yourself. Let that be the answer to your question. I don't know about y'all, but um, this struggle that John the Baptist, the great John the Baptist experiences here and communicates even, brings me great encouragement. It does. 
I'm going to be honest once again, but I'm encouraged that John is hurting because when I'm hurting, to think that this guy could be hurting, the greatest of all time could be hurting as well and struggling with his, 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 his understanding of who Jesus is. Is Jesus God the incarnate? Is he the Emmanuel or is he, an, is he an imposter, right? The miracle child, the guy with the incredible ministry who was born miraculously, right? He's struggling with his faith. I think it should bring us all encouragement as the man, the father of the boy who was struck and, and, and um, um, he was overcome by the, the death and the mute spirit. You can read about it in Mark chapter 9. He says, Jesus, if you can heal him, I mean, he can be healed. And, and what does Jesus says? If, of course I can do this, if you, if you have belief. And what does that man say? He says, Lord, I believe. And then he says, help my what? Unbelief. That's John the Baptist. That's you and that's me. And here are the words that Jesus gives to John to encourage him, but also to all of us in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Who is Jesus referring to in that Second portion of verse 11, he's referring to us, to those of us who are in Christ, who are in the kingdom of heaven. In, in, this, in the understanding of salvation history, that timeline, John is living pre, pre the completion of the, the work that Jesus Christ had come, that he was announcing as the forerunner. Salvation history had not kind of gotten to the point where John could be declared, at least, you know, in, this, in that setting. As one who belonged in the, in the kingdom of heaven. But this, in this passage, Jesus is speaking of, of us. And this passage should bring great encouragement to us. To those of us who are stuck with identity struggles and issues. Those of us who are not remembering God's faithfulness because we're in a situation that is confusing and painful. You who are the least in the kingdom of God, you will be greater than the one that Jesus says was greater than anyone born of woman up to that point. John was able to remember Jesus' faithfulness and his promises, and he was able to hold fast to the message that he preached, even as he experienced this persecution and his, his martyrdom. Grace, I just want to um, encourage you with this truth that um, God is faithful. And he's not faithful because of the strength of your faith, the vitality of your faith. He is faithful because he's the object of your faith. And through this Jesus, the one that John pointed to again and again and again, you have experienced victory and vindication.
and true life, and entrance into this kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for showing us through incredible servants and um, characters, um, men and women like John the Baptizer, who lived faithfully, who lived radically, who lived ultimately making much of the only one who could save him and be the Lord of his life, the Lord over his ministries, the Lord over his death. Father, give us um, a reminder that this is who you are. This is um, who we are to bow the knee to. This is the one, you are the one who has called us out of darkness. You've called us into your marvelous light. And for many of us, you've called us and you're using us now. But Lord, help us to remember that we are but empty vessels. We are jars of clay and that we need to remember who we are in light of who you are. Thank you for the encouragement that you brought to John the Baptist, even in that hardest situation, that impossible situation. Lord, I know that you can bring the same encouragement to us in all our situations and circumstances. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.